This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. So you said that physical activities may be in a special role. Would you say there's some recommendations how babies, toddlers should spend spend their day between reading or looking pictures or dif- different tasks that they can do? Yeah, so the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, which both Kirk and I were members of the Scientific Advisory Board, uh, has guidelines around movement at young ages. I, you know, the WHO and I know Australia and other places do as well. And I, I think that in the case of like, you know, you go to the very earliest point in childhood, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, infancy, you know, they talk about tummy time, right? And so having them on their on their bellies and, and, and moving, I believe it's three hours a day. I think that's what it was. You know, I'd have to refresh my memory of all the, the guidelines. And so, you know, but as they get older and they start to, to move and, and amble, uh, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of it is around, you know, movement and walking. And I can't remember how many hours, but eventually it goes to by the time they're five, you know, an hour a day, you know, 60 minutes or more of moderate to vigorous physical activity intermittently dispersed throughout the day. And then there's additional guidelines for muscle and bone loading, right? Or strengthening. And so, you know, I think what we're trying to get to is maybe where we were, you know, back in the, you know, say 40s and 50s before we started to become, you know, more inactive and overweight as a nation or as a, as a world, as a species, uh, in the sense that, you know, kids walk to school or they bike to school, they you know, they had recess, they had physical education, you know, then they walked home. And so, I mean, if you do those things at a moderate pace, you've probably knocked out half to two thirds of the requirement for the day, right? Kids were sent outside to play. Uh, And so, you know, you played outside until, you know, typically back then your mom called, you know, screamed your name and you ran home, right? And so a lot of this was achieved through either, you know, uh, through transportation to school, through during, you know, being at school, or through play behavior after school. And a lot of those things are gone. I mean, in some regards, uh, you know, I have a colleague at, uh, at UCLA, uh, Fernando Gomez Pania, who likes to say that we're victims of our own ingenuity. And it's true. I mean, we've, we've basically outsmarted ourselves as a species. You know, we've, we, we, we ride our, we drive our cars and we could walk or ride a bicycle. We, you know, we have cell phones, you know, we have escalators and elevators, you know, we've basically engineered physical activity out of our lives. And so commuting is less active than ever before, you know, and, and our, our days are less active than they were before. And you said that it's difficult, more difficult to study children and see see the changes. What kind of research designs we would need to tease, tease out these different changes, different kind of stimuli, what's, what's best for the development, for example? I mean, I, I think at a global scale, we need randomized controlled trials. We need well, well-designed, well-controlled randomized trials. Um, you know, the field is full of a lot of, you know, it's full of, of a lot of cross-sectional work and there's a place for that. Tr- clinical trials are expensive uh, in order to make sure we're not wasting, you know, time and resources. I think we need to do, clinic, uh, you know, cross-sectional work to, you know, put our best foot forward before engaging in these more expensive and time-consuming trials. Having said that, you know, a lot of the meta-analyses out there suggest that the less rigorous the, you know, 
the experiment, the more, the larger the difference, the larger the effect. And so I think, you know, in the case of, of younger kids or, you know, these, the, the more difficult samples, I think we need to get a, a better understanding, you know, of how to measure physical activity in, in, you know, toddlers and young kids, how to measure fitness, how to, you know, how to measure, you know, uh, cognition. And, the, you know, the, there are fields that do that, but it's, it's not as easy as it is with older kids and adults. And if you had an unlimited budget for one study, what kind of study would it be? Well, I trust you, took, you, you talked to Kirk Erickson about that yesterday. We had pretty close to an unlimited budget for uh, a study in older adults. Um, and, and I would probably mimic that study to start as a starting spot, right? If we're to do this in kids, you know, uh, that study was in older adults. It's, we call it Ignite. Uh, we're just about to wrap up data collection after six years. But basically, it was a dose response in that individuals were assigned to a, a stretching and flexibility group or to uh, 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week or, uh, or to a cardio uh, or sorry, or to 225 minutes uh, per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity. And so, you know, we can look at effects between stretching and flexibility versus aerobic exercise. You know, we have baseline six month and 12 month. Uh, it, was, it was a year-long study, 12-month, you know, assessments. And those assessments are everything from, you know, cellular and molecular to uh, multimodal imaging using, you know, uh, MRI, fMRI, PET to a massive behavioral assessment of cognition, along with all kinds of other factors, you know, psych, uh, social and demographic to, to look at, you know, what other variables might, you know, might be important here. And, and I can envision that happening at the school level, at the, at the child level in schools using, you know, say eight or nine month interventions the school year, like we did with our Fit Kids study on a much larger scale. I mean, you know, Fit Kids allowed mm -hmm. us, it was a well-controlled study. It was, it was, it allowed us to, uh, you know, look at effects on structure and function of the brain as well as cognition, academic performance. But it answered one question, right, or two questions, and we need to build off of that. I think people are. I think it's just going to take some time. And you mentioned that you have a lot of different research methods. What do you think is the, the most useful method of, of different ways of measuring brain and cognition? I mean, I don't think there's one way. Uh, I like the idea of multimodal imaging. I mean, every, every imaging tool has its strengths and weaknesses. You know, uh, MRI is outstanding at, at getting us structural information and, and functional information uh, in terms of resolution. Uh, it's not good at the temporal level, right? So mm. the time course of it is quite slow and sluggish, you know, where if you look at EEG or ERPs, you know, that spatially isn't very sophisticated, but temporally it's way better than, than MRI. And so I think, you know, combining these together um, and, and, you know, you can add PET and MEG and all these other great tools in there, you know, along with, I think, importantly, with good experimentation, right? I mean, I think it's now quite easy to use a lot of neuroimaging tools without really understanding how to, you know, fully how they work and, and how to design a good experiment. I mean, I think there's multiple levels. And, and included in that, I would say, is the idea of, of, of a control group. I mean, you know, the control group is, is probably another hotly debated area. What's, what's the proper control? You know, and I remember I, I, you know, I got reviews on a grant once that basically to to get funded and in response to these reviews, I, you know, it was pretty clear they wanted a weightless control group. 
And, you know, they basically want to compare physical activity intervention to normal, typical aging or, you know, typical mm-hmm. development of kids, right? Aging of kids. Um, but then when I went to publish what was really excellent data, the first place I published said, well, we, we don't like your control group of, of uh, you know, of just typical development, you know, weightless control. We would want to see them doing something to compare it to. And so, you know, probably the best answer for what's the right control group, control group would be multiple control groups, you know? active and mm. passive control groups, right? Positive and negative controls. So um, it, it, it makes experimenting pretty difficult and expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think you had a study with the obese children and that the visceral fat was linked to brain function, but not subcutaneous fat. Could, could you tell more about this study? I think it was very interesting. Yeah, we've actually had a couple of these studies now. Um, yeah, this work is done with my my longtime colleagues, uh, Lauren Rain, who's here at Northeastern, and uh, Naimon Khan, who's uh, at University of Illinois. And, you know, I think for probably a decade before we jumped into that that arena, people found relationships between either body mass index or, or body fat or, um, you know, various measures of body mass effects on, you know, brain uh, structure, function, cognition uh, in various populations. And, mm. you know, when we jumped in, one of the things we needed to do was to, you know, not assume all fat was the same. And in fact, we've now shown it's not. Apparently subcutaneous fat doesn't have that same relationship as visceral fat. And we, we see relationships between visceral fat and uh, the neuroelectric system. So using EEG or, uh, you know, or executive functioning or academic achievement in kids. And, and you know, we don't know why visceral or not and not subcutaneous, but but one thought that we have is that um, is that visceral fat is particularly metabolically demanding compared to subcutaneous, and so maybe it's a competition for resources, the changes in metabolism that come with greater amounts of visceral fat uh, might be you know might be one reason why uh, we see differences amongst the t- types of fat and their relationships. Very interesting, and and how, how do you see? light intensity activity for example now it's a lot of research about sedentary behavior and you can counteract with light intensity activity do we have evidence how does it affect the brain and or what's the speculation yeah so i'm trying to think uh you know we haven't done any of that work uh, i know there's a paper in uh, pnas uh a couple of years ago by uh, a group in japan um i can't think who it who did that work off the top of my head. Um, but I mean, there is emerging evidence, I guess I would say that light intensity physical activity has a relationship with brain. You know, again, it's one of these areas that that there is evidence, the evidence is decent, but it's a small body of evidence. And so uh, I'm not aware of anything in children with light intensity physical activity demonstrating a, you know, a selective effect relative to moderate to vigorous or vigorous activity. And I think, you know, there's probably a lot of utility for light physical activity for adult populations that have been sedentary for a long time, starting them there. And if, you know, they can do it for that period, of, you know, for a period of time and gain benefits, that's probably, you know, a really good way to start them out. Um, and I'm not aware of any intervention that that, that modulated intensity uh, to look mm-hmm. at brain structure and function in a way that, that would allow for uh, results or interpretation. But I, you know, I might be missing something there. I haven't spent as much time studying the light intensity literature as probably some of my colleagues. And and probably light uh, intensity activity doesn't result in fitness gains. Do you think that in children, fitness gains are essential to get 
optimal or or most of the uh, advantages of activity? Yeah, that's a good question. And there, I think that's another hotly debated area in the field. Um, you know, I, I do believe that we need to improve our fitness to in order to gain benefits. Um, having said that, it doesn't appear we need to improve it very much. You know, in the case of like my fit kids studies, you know, we took really low fit kids. And over the course of nine months, they improved their fitness by less than 6%. And so at the end of the six, at the end of the nine months, these low fit kids were slightly less low fit. They would still fall in that category. And we saw mm -hmm. tremendous, you know, gains in brain function and cognition. And so um, I, I believe that they need to improve their fitness. But, you know, that's me speculating from, from data that I have. I don't think it's a definitive, you know, this is the mechanism. But I would, I would certainly, any, you know, I, th I think we need to maybe design an experiment where we have people participate in the same amount of physical activity with some gaining fitness and some not. But that's quite a mm -hmm. difficult study to, you know, to use different intensities and maintain, you know, uh, duration or, you know, or dose. So there's probably, there's a good, probably a good couple experiments in there to see if, if, if I'm right. And do we know more about in high intensity, like if you if you have moderate vigorous, but do we know like high or very high intensity activity? Is it affect the different? Yeah, so we know it in a different paradigm, I think, fairly well, and that's uh, uh, an acute paradigm, right? And so we've had a number of studies showing that single doses of both moderate walking, but also high intensity interval training relate to better brain function and cognition in the case of kids' academic performance afterwards. And so I think that there's certainly, if you think about it from the from kids and kids being sedentary in school all day, there's quite a bit of utility in using these brief fitness breaks or brief physical activity breaks, uh, especially if they lead to, to better performance for a period of time afterwards. Um, I have a good colleague in Australia, Dave Lubins, uh, and he's actually gone in and done year-long hit interventions using his intervention called Burn to Learn. And uh, these are brief. They're, you know, I don't know, 10 minutes or less in the classroom, led by students, you know, and uh, and uh, they they demonstrate improvements in fitness and, and a bunch of other and improvements in cardiovascular fitness and a bunch of other mechanisms, you know, a bunch of other uh, uh, outcomes you know, following that intervention. And so I think, you know, we, and we see some differences in, in, uh, in, in cognition and mental health as well. And so, I mean, I think that there is certainly a really strong argument to be made for using high intensity interval training as an intervention in schools. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data, introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting-edge, next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. 
Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is s-e-n-s.fibian.com. Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. And if you could design a school day, how would you design it for optimal brain functioning and learning from the physical activity perspective? Yeah, well, I'd love to do that. That would be a, a fun thing to do. But I think, you know, ideally every kid would walk to school, right? Uh, mm. You know, ideally they would get a nutritious breakfast at school and then they would Throughout the school day, they would engage in 45 minutes of learning, 10 minutes of different forms of exercise, you know, interventions from high-intensity interval training to, you know, uh, some moderate walking to some, you know, yoga and, you know, motor, more motor learning types of activities. But it'll be a 45-minute learning, pro, uh, you know, 45-minute lesson, 10-minute exercise, 5-minute rest, and then do it again throughout the whole day. That would be my, my approach. That could be. It It shouldn't be that difficult to arrange. Like, And probably the goal of the school is to learn and have good brains. You're preaching to the choir. I, you know, I think when I talk to schools and school districts, you know, the, what I learn the most is just how, at least in the U.S., how much pressure they're under. I don't think anyone says that you can't, you know, that I don't think anyone disagrees with us. I think they just kind of look at the environment they're in and, and the goals they have and I don't think that they're willing to make that change in most cases. And I think this podcast has probably many listeners who are doing physical activity research, maybe not that much the brain aspects and cognition. If if they have a good intervention study and they could maybe add something in the protocol, it wouldn't be their main variable. But what would you suggest them to add from, for example, from cognition perspective that it wouldn't add too much burden? but could give interesting results? Yeah, you know, I get this question a lot. You know, I want to add in a cognitive component. I only have five minutes to do it. And, and I, you know, I basically say that you're going you're gonna to get in what you put it, you know, you're going to get out what you put in. And having five minutes to study cognition, you, maybe you're going to ha- be able to grab one test, you know, one, one task, you know, be a paper and pencil or computer-based. And it's not going to give you a lot of evidence. I mean, you know, even if you find a significant relationship, it, it's, you know, it's one measure, right? Hmm. Um, and then I, I always ask you, what are you interested in? I mean, you know, there's evidence across multiple components of cognition, from attention to to memory to executive functioning, you know, to reaction time. And, and you know, based on what your interests are, I think you know, I try and help people develop something, right? Uh, you know, I typically want hmm. I want an hour. You know, I, I usually settle for a half hour. Five minutes is is going to be a pretty tough sell. I don't have a great answer for you there. Yeah, we we are soon running out of time. Um, are you looking for any collaborators for your studies? And if if yes, what what kind of collaborators? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I mean, I've been doing this twenty three years, and I I have uh, a very good group of co- colleagues and collaborators around me. So so I'm not presently looking for anyone, but I'm always interested in a good collaboration. You know, and and I think what makes for a good collaboration is, you know, the recognition of what my expertise is, and then bringing something that complements my expertise to the table, right? I mean, you know, sometimes you get people say, Oh, I'd love to collaborate with you. And we and I said, Great, what do you want to do? And I walk away and think, well, I do that already. <laughs> you know, So I don't need another me, 
You know, I, I need mm. what I what I get excited about is you know the idea that that I could collaborate with someone who's going to bring something you know really new to the table, and, and we can think about this in, in multiple different ways. And that could be for new imaging technique. You know, if I talk to my cognition and, and cognitive neuroscience friends, um, or it could be you know a new type of physical activity or or a different physical activity mode. If if I'm talking to my kinesiology colleagues, and so it just it, I, I think it depends. Um, you know, I, I do want to get younger in the in the lifespan than we have. I think that you know, and I'd love to get all the way you know to uh, you know pre pre birth, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to understand you know multiple levels of, of of you know where physical activity begins to influence the you know the individual. You know, so that, that's a tough question because I also like to collaborate a lot. I mean, that's I think how science works best, and so I get excited. I get more excited about other people's work than my own, even in different areas. I walked past a room, you know, a couple months ago here in my building. There was, you know, a hundred drones in a tiny little room all flying around. And I looked at that and the first thought in my head was, man, I should have done that kind of research. You know, So I just get excited about other people's work. Yeah. And, and you have been successful with many grants. What would be your advice for early career researcher with grants and and in general academic career? Yeah, I mean clearly grant writing is important. That's um, always been a focus in my career. Uh, the best advice I can give you is is get a grant written. You know, get a good example of a grant that you know it doesn't have to be in your area, but an example of a grant that's been successful. Understand the structure of it. Understand the arguments that are made, and then and then write a grant and submit it. Get it submitted. You're, you're unlikely to get it funded the first time, but the best advice I can give you is, is then stick with it, right? It's just like being an athlete, you know, or, or a good student or whatever it is. I mean, you know, these things come easy to a few people, but for the vast majority of us, we have to work at it. We learn a little bit every time we get rejected and, you know, we don't give up and we go back and we, we try again. And, you know, I've had grants that have been accepted on the first go. I've had grants that have taken me five, six, seven years to get accepted, you know, multiple submissions because I know it's a good idea, but maybe the idea just isn't as ready for funding as I thought it was initially. And then, you know, you get a, a set of eyes on it that, you know, are, are, are completely new to it. And so they think about it from novel directions. And, you know, every time you get that review, you get disappointed, you read it, you curse a little bit, and you, you don't think about it, you know, you put it away. But then if you go back to it a couple weeks later, you, you know, you start to say, ah, you know what, they might've been right here. You know, they might've been right there. Maybe I got to run these three, you know, three to five subjects and, and develop a proof of concept for this piece. And, and you just start to think through it and it gets, and eventually you, you'll hit if you stick with it. So basically stick with it, iterate and try to get better. Always. Yes. This has been really interesting discussion. So thank you for it. Do you have any final words for this episode? Yeah, I guess my final words would be, I hope uh, I hope you get your exercise in before or after listening to this podcast. Or during it. During as well is fine at any point. Perfect. Thank you. This was great. Thank you, Ollie. I very much appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for 
forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.